This is the Motley Fool's Financials Edition, where we make banking news interesting or at least less boring. Hello, everyone. Gabby LaPera here with John Maxfield on the phone. Today, we're going to be talking about Bank of America and the Fed doing, well, nothing. Uh, so let's start with Bank of America because something's actually going on there. We talked about this a few weeks ago. So back in September of 2014, Bank of America quietly merged the position of CEO and chairman of the board. This caused an outcry amongst investors who had voted to split the positions during the financial crisis in 2009. Um, back then, Ken Lewis was in charge, and Brian Moynihan took over for him as CEO in 2010. Uh, what, what's Moynihan's track record like, Maxfield? You know, I, there's a, the people think that, you know look at this differently than I do. I, I get the impression when I read the news media, but it is my impression that Moynihan has done an excellent job as CEO of Bank of America. What's important to understand is that, like, are they struggling? Yes, they're absolutely struggling. Have they struggled over the last, what, five or six years? Yeah, absolutely. But none of that was Brian Moynihan's making. Brian Moynihan stepped into the CEO position in the very beginning of 2010 after that country, that disastrous countrywide financial that caused all these losses occurred. So he has just really been the cleanup guy, which has been it's my understanding that that has really been his role, quite frankly, at both Bank of America and at Fleet Boston Financial, which is the company he was at before Bank of America, but Fleet Boston was actually purchased by, by Bank of America, um, for his entire time at, at the organization. So I personally think that you know, if this is a referendum on anything, it's not a referendum on, on Brian Moynihan's performance. It's rather a referendum on the board of directors um, who made a decision uh, to elect him Chairman of the C, uh, chairman of the board, as a, in addition to being CEO, without asking for shareholder approval. Right. So it's it's not because Moynihan is terrible. It's just because the board is sneaky. And granted, there are pros and cons to having a split CEO and chairman of the board. Um, just from a purely functional perspective, of course, it makes it harder for the company to deal with others when you have a split position like that. Uh, just like the United States has one president to deal with foreign powers, it makes it a lot easier for companies, which the vast majority of companies do have this uh, CEO, chairman of the board combination. Um, but there there are other reasons to, to maybe have a split position. They can especially be beneficial for navigating the peaks and troughs of the economic cycle, right? That's right. And, and just to be clear, and I know you, you stated that this, that at the beginning, but this is a really important point. The problem at Bank of America isn't just that the CEO and the chair are combined, which theoretically speaking would reduce oversight, right, shareholder oversight, because the board is supposed to, to provide that oversight of the executive. The problem is more that in 2009, the, the shareholders voted, a majority of shareholders voted to split the positions. And then a, a mere five years later, the board of directors unilaterally reversed that decision. So when you look at that, you think that shareholders are the owners of the company, and then the board of directors and, and a, a substantial share of the board of directors are relatively new to the board over the last few years. When you look at that, you think, why in the world would Bank of America's board do such – I mean, it's, it's difficult to figure out why they felt compelled to go around shareholders in this regard, and, and they didn't see problems ahead as a result of doing that. But again, to your point, fundamentally this issue, I, I was talking to an academic the other day who calls this the El Dorado of corporate governance, the, the question of whether or not a company's chairman and CEO should be combined. Because even though there have been literally, according to him, over a hundred studies on this issue, 
not a single one of them has been able to find a statistically significant correlation between a company's performance and whether or not the CEO and chair are held by the same person. Right. Um, I, I believe you're referring to, uh, to this 2013 article by Krauss and uh, Semadeni, I think that's how you say his name, um, that looked at the performance of companies depending on whether or not the two positions were split. Um, their analysis found strong support. Um, I didn't see anywhere that it, it found um, you know, statistically significant support, but strong support. Right. So, so th- that's what, what that study found is that when, if they didn't look at, they looked at S&P 500 companies that split that position and then broke it down into these different categories. And, the, and really the only thing they found was that at the small handful of companies that split the position somewhat punitively after a company had performed poorly, they found that there was an improvement in the results Subsequent to that, and as opposed, and, and alternatively, if you split, they found that if you split the role after really good performance, then you see the performance go down. But they, but it, the sample set of where when the actual split, the number of companies on the SP 500 that actually split those roles within their sample was a really, really small share. But but they, what they weren't able to find was that for the vast majority of companies on the S and P five hundred that actually keep the that they actually either keep them together or separate them, but didn't have a change during the two thousand the years between two thousand three and two thousand five, which is the data that they looked at. They they didn't they weren't able to tease out any sort of correlation between the two, which leads you to believe that at best what their studies show is that look if you're going through a hard time. Then and, and you think it's the CEO's fault, who's also the chairman, then of course he should be demoted from being the chairman, which like makes perfect sense. Um, but alternatively, if things are going well, why in the world would you split them? Um, you know, so, so that's kind of what their study found. Right. Um, just to, to remind listeners, the vote on whether or not to split the position, because the board has backtracked and said, you know, we respect our investors, we're going to let you guys actually vote on this. That vote is tomorrow, September 22nd, 2015. Um, there's no real way to know exactly how the vote is going to go, but I will say that a lot of large institutional investors have said that they are going to vote against having the position merged. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that next week, right? Yeah, and let me let me just bring up one more one more point about that. So, a lot of institutional investors are lining up against Bank of America on this, and this is particularly um, the big pension funds of the different states and government entities. However, one important thing to keep in mind is that Bank of America's biggest shareholders are actually institutional investors that own, that that operate mutual funds or index funds. Then these are like BlackRock, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, Fidelity, and all of and the majority of those companies. Their CEOs are also their chairmen. So if you look at the top five shareholders of Bank of America, four of them have CEOs that are also the chairs, which would lead one to believe that at least among the, the, the very, very biggest shareholders of Bank of America, that they are more inclined to vote against this as opposed to uh, – against splitting the roles as opposed to voting for it. But again, if a large enough share of those smaller but still big institutional investors are able to get together and vote against it, then Moynihan very well could um, be facing that, uh, that possibility. Awesome. Um, that's interesting stuff. So let's move on to some other wild speculation talking about the uh, Fed interest rates. 
So uh, just last week, the Fed voted to keep interest rates the same, near zero. Um, and there's there's definitely a few different reasons this could have happened. Uh, one of the primary reasons that seems to be being bandied around is that uh, there's overseas economic weakness, especially in China and in Europe. Um, and this could be one of the motivating factors in keeping the interest rate low. When foreign markets are weak, um, it drives our foreign exports, exports down because our dollar is much stronger, so people aren't going to want to buy our products. Um, additionally, even though we've hit our unemployment target, uh, the inflation is still crazy, crazy low. It's only at 0.2%. Yeah, so when you look at... so. Yeah, so let's just break this down. So you have two different things that are going on here. That's what it looks like to me, anyhow. You have China is having a lot of problems right now in their markets and potentially in their fundamental economy. And one of the things that their central bank did was they devalued the yuan relative to the U.S. dollar. And that makes, so that makes the U.S. dollar much stronger, right? And if, also, if you look at what's going on in Europe, because of the economic turmoil there surrounding Greece and the other troubled countries, the euro is also trading at, I think, a decade low. So if, you, look, if you're looking to travel to Europe anytime soon, now would be a pretty good time to do so. But the problem with that is because the dollar is then stronger, it costs more for our trading partners to buy things from us, which then drives down your exports. And exports are a part of GDP, so that impacts your economic growth, right? So what if the Federal Reserve were to come in and raise interest rates, what would happen in that situation is foreign money would flood into the United States to take advantage of those higher interest rates. When foreign money floods into the United States, basically what's happening there is foreign um, investors are exchanging their currency for U.S. dollars. So they're buying U.S. dollars. So the demand for U.S. dollars goes up. When the demand for U.S. dollars goes up, the price of U.S. dollars goes up relative to their own currencies, which would further drive down your exports. So that's one of the, that is, I, I think, one of the two primary reasons why the Federal Reserve is so reluctant right now to pull the trigger on higher interest rates. And then that second point is that, look, what the Federal Reserve has, it's called a dual mandate. Its responsibility is to maintain full employment at the same time that they're balancing price stability. Because you don't want runaway inflation just out, of, just out of the interest to drive unemployment down to 1%. So when they define un- full employment, right now they're defining it as between 5% and 5.2% uh, unemployment rate. And I think, right now, I think our most recent reading was 5.1%. So they've hit that target. But the problem is that their target on the inflation side is 2%. A lot of people think that inflation is bad. Well, a lot of inflation is bad, but a little bit of inflation is actually a sign of a very healthy economy. And what the Fed Reserve has found is that they think that for the United States economy, a 2% inflation mark is a sign of a healthy economy, but inflation right now is a tenth of that. And so that's the second reason it appears that the Federal Reserve seems to be holding back on uh, driving up those rates, even though countless analysts and commentators have been speculating that they'll do so at some, at some point this year. And I do want to point out, um, sometimes people worry because um, when the Fed doesn't raise interest rates, maybe it means that our economy is weak. It's actually maybe the opposite. Our, our economy is fairly strong right now, maybe a little bit too strong in comparison to everyone else's. Um, so I wouldn't worry about the market just crashing all of a sudden, although, of course, with the with the added stipulation that um, you never know what's going to happen, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, unemployment is really good. 
um, right now in the United States. And because our economy on a relative basis, relative to the other economies in the world, seems to be doing the best, at least among the major economies, um, the fact that the Federal is that I mean, that is the reason that the, that the U.S. dollar is already strong, and that's the reason that the, US, the, the Federal Reserve wouldn't want to make it even stronger, uh, at least not right now. Right. And then there's also the possibility, of course, that uh, Jan- Janet Yellen is just being conservative with uh, interest rates because the last time there was something, I mean, obviously the last time there was something, uh, an economic crisis this large was the Great Depression. Um, which was, right. which was, uh, that's exactly right. And there was, so, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, so what happened then was a lot of people think that right at the beginning, um, when, when the economy was recovering, um, they cut programs and cut initiatives that had been helping the economy too soon, which just drove the country back into depression, which really we only recovered from when we entered the world war. Right. Is exactly what, that's exactly right. Just, let me just clarify a couple things in there. When you look at when we think of the Great Depression, we just think of like one big bad thing. But the Great Depression was actually two steep recessions that were in close proximity to each other. One in 1930, one in 1937. And with the economic historians that have looked back, the most credible ones that carry the most weight nowadays, they look back on the that second recession in 1937, and they say that the reason that happened was because the Federal Reserve started reducing, uh, started increasing interest rates too early before the market, um, before the economy was stable enough. And then that kicked us back into yet another deep uh, recession, which then, when you couple that with the first one, is what makes up the Great Depression. And you can be assured that, you know, Ben Bernanke, he was a specialist on the Great Depression, and Janet Yellen, who worked with him for many years at the Federal Reserve, you can be assured that, that 1937, that year in particular, is one of the things that is on their head right now as they're trying to determine when to start reducing their support for the economy. Right. And, of course, people are already asking if the Fed will raise interest rates next time they meet. Um, And I definitely want to put out there that trying to predict what the Fed will do is impossible. Everyone always wants to try. There's there's always articles coming out that they're going to raise it, they're going to lower it. I saw an article this morning saying they're going to have negative interest rates, which is just absurd and inflammatory. Um, but that, that, that's a that's that's a very po- that's very very possible um, to have negative interest rates, and I mean we're not far from there right now. We're only twenty basis points, um, but it, it, no. But to your point, nobody knows. It's, impo- it's extremely difficult to predict what the Fed is going to do because they're looking at so many variables, and a lot of their variables other people don't have access to because they have such good data. So it, it really is a fool's errand to base any type of investment decision around what you may or may not predict that the Federal Reserve is going to do. Because I can guarantee you this right now, you may guess right, but all it is is a guess. Yep, that's really true. Um, so we're obviously going to report on this next time they meet. Um, they, again, might do nothing. Uh, They might do something because I believe the next time they meet is in December, which is right in the midst of one of the stronger – should be one of the stronger um, upticks in our economy due to to the holiday spending. But who knows? Maybe they'll keep it the same. The other thing to keep in mind is besides them having a lot more data than we do, we also don't know what's going to happen in the rest of the world um, economically speaking. So there's just no way to know. Um, So everyone just kind of sit tight and then react (laughs) to what happens as opposed to trying to anticipate. 
Um, so uh, our time is almost up here. Uh, next week, we're going to be doing an earnings preview for the banking sector's third quarter. Uh, we've already heard that banks think their revenue will be down and that volatility is high. Yeah, so we've heard that. The, the, banks have not said that their revenues are going to be down, but what they've said is that revenues from trading are going to be down. And revenues from trading, those account, it depends on what bank you're looking at, but they account for uh, you know, something like 5%. Uh, for 10% of some of these, these these big universal banks' total revenues. So, so it's not like the majority of the revenue, but it's, it's a small share. But even a small share makes a big difference. Let's look, look at Bank of America in particular. So in the six months into June 30th of this year, it earned just south of $4 billion in trading revenue. And they're saying that their trading revenue is going to be down by 5% in the upcoming quarter. And that translates into something along the lines of $100 million in quarterly pre-tax income. So $100 million, yeah, for a, for a company like Bank of America that, you know, if everything is going well, it should be earning, you know, something like $6, 7 $8 billion a quarter in after-tax income. $100 million may not seem like a lot, but $100 million is $100 million, um, and every little bit matters. And here's, I, I pulled up the statistic, uh, or I, I figured the statistic right before we jump on, on, on the podcast, but one of the things with trading revenues that you have to keep in mind with these large banks is that they are inherently volatile. And if you look at, let's say, J.P. Morgan Chase, if you go back to the beginning of uh, 2007, so this will capture the financial crisis, and you look at, you compare the volatility of its trading revenue to the volatility of its asset management revenue to the volatility of its investment banking revenue, what you see is that the volatility expressed by standard deviation for its trading revenues is 10 times greater than either the volatility for its investment banking revenue or the volatility for its asset management revenue. So what that just goes to show is that, look, we, the, this goes with the territory when you're talking big universal banks, um, and it shouldn't be a big surprise, but it nevertheless is something that's going to be weighing on their results in the, in the upcoming quarter, which could have a downward impact on their share prices. But again, they could have revenue in other areas that makes up for the difference. So, so really, you know, to, to figure out, to see, you know, what happens, uh, you, know, uh, you know, on the, on the actual bottom line, you just got to wait to see, to see their results, which we'll talk about to your point next week. Great. We'll definitely get into that next week. Uh, just a reminder to our listeners out there, the Motley Fool and John and I may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned. Um, don't buy or sell based on anything you hear today. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.